Hi, I'm David Crow, and this is episode 234 of The Infectious Myth. Email me at david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com. That's crow with an E. Join the discussion and like us at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at infectiousmyth. Listen Tuesdays at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on prn.fm, or listen afterwards as a podcast. You can also listen to any of the last five episodes over the phone by dialing the U.S. number 701-719-0990. prn.fm has voicemail. Call 862-800-6805 and leave a message or question for the show. Make sure you leave your name and indicate that the question is for the infectious myth. If you dial either of these numbers, long-distance charges may apply. I don't know that you're a listener until I hear from you, so send me a message letting me know how you stay in touch with the show and what you like about it. If you include your mailing address, I'll send you a little thank you gift from one of the bookmarks I make by hand using my own photographs. I do really love to hear from my listeners, so don't be shy. You can make a one-time donation to the expenses of the show via PayPal using the email david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com or commit to monthly donations at patreon.com or liberapay.com where we are also Infectious Myth, one word. We appreciate all our listeners, but if you want the show to continue to grow and improve, consider paying a small amount for the information you're gleaning. I'm sure you know that independent media are important, and we can't raise money from big commercial interests because much of what goes on here is against their interests. So if you want us to thrive, donate. And not just the infectious myth, all the independent media you read, watch, or listen to, even a dollar a month or a one-time $10 donation makes a big difference. If you'd like me to speak at a meeting of an organization you're a member of on any topic on which you think I have an interesting or worthwhile opinion, I'd be happy to discuss this with you. I appreciate you commenting and suggesting guests. I appreciate your financial support as well. Thanks for listening and for recommending this show to your friends. I'm still working on the coronavirus story. I now have an audio version, infectiousmyth.com slash book slash coronavirus.mp3 all lowercase. Or for the written, written version, infectiousmyth.com slash book slash coronaviruspanic.pdf. And for some reasons, I have a capital C on coronavirus and a capital P on panic. Clifford on Facebook uh, commented twice. First, he said, thank you for all of your work, David. And then a little bit later, uh, when I announced the Harry Habercross interview, he wrote, I'm very excited for this discussion. Thank you so much for your hard work. Thanks, Clifford. Brian sent me a link to uh, a YouTube video, which is a CBC undercover investigative program of a public vaccine meeting. I responded, thanks for contacting me and for the link. By going undercover, the CBC was giving the impression that it was a secretive meeting when it was actually public. I had the same thing happen to me when researching AIDS. A psychology professor named Seth Kalikman went undercover as Joseph Newton to talk to people who questioned the HIV-AIDS hypothesis. But we would have talked to him openly. In fact, after we blew his cover, he asked me again for some information, and I gave it to him, despite no knowing at that time that he was writing a book slamming critics of AIDS theory. The level of media bias on vaccines or AIDS or mental illness or just about any medical issue, is stunning. Coincidentally, I just interviewed James Lyons Weiler 
although we didn't dwell on the subject of the CBC article. On the other hand, the independent uh, British newspaper that's usually pro-vaccine just published an article, which if read carefully, and if you read the scientific paper that it refers to, shows that cervical cancer rates in the UK are up 50% since vaccination started in young women, uh, those who've most likely been vaccinated. And the scientific paper basically says that the research was fraudulent because it mixed the harmless cervical lesions in with the ones that are likely to cause cancer. So now let's go to this week's interview. We return to the subject of gender identity. This time, what it's like to have biological male, the biological males housed with women in formerly women-only prisons. Let's listen. Heather Mason found out about women's jails in Canada by being sentenced to one due to her drug habit. While on the inside, she also found out that intact biological males were being transferred to women's prisons simply by saying the magic words, I feel like a woman. Heather got out of jail, overcame her drug addiction, and is now advocating for women still on the inside, especially on this new gender issue. She's a founding member of CAWSBR.ca, Canadian Women's Sex-Based Rights. Welcome to the show, Heather. Hi, thank you. I can't believe I got that acronym out, I think, correctly. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> so, you did good. Thanks. So first, can you describe how you ended up in jail, and then we'll talk about your experiences while you were there. Yes, so I, I had like a rough childhood, um, lots of trauma. Um, my dad was an alcoholic, my mom was a drug addict, um, stepdad was um, a predator. But I managed to keep it together. I moved out young, I worked three jobs, I went to school, I became a personal support worker. Everything was kind of good. I, um, I did dabble with drugs. like. I smoked weed all the time. Um, mm -hmm. I drank and I did coke in high school, but it's not really out of the norm for most teenagers. Um, but then I ended up getting my wisdom teeth removed when mm -hmm. I was 18 or 19 and they gave me a prescription to Percocets and um, I really liked them. And wow. I ended up getting into a car accident. Um, so I was driving home actually on my lunch break from school on the highway and I blew a tire and I ended up flipping my van four times and landing on the opposite side of the highway on the roof. Wow. And, yeah. And so I remembered how the Percocets worked and I started using more and more after that. Luckily I walked away from that accident. But Other I mean, did you like, have residual pain from the, trauma like even if you didn't break bones so it was basically my shoulder um mm -hmm. i think maybe a nerve damage i'm not they're not exactly sure but i had a lot of bruising especially from my seatbelt right um, so i started self-medicating mm -hmm. and i really i really liked them and then someone well i was dating a guy and he introduced me to oxys Right. Um, and I really, really liked those. And then the government noticed there was an issue going on with the oxys, and their solution was, well, we'll just get rid of the oxys and we'll put out the neos so that people can't abuse them, and people will magically stop abusing them 
and our problem will go away. Yeah, like, I mean, if you if you make it more difficult for addicts to get drugs, that's going to solve the problem, right? As opposed to addicts figuring out a way to get drugs. Exactly. And from that moment, so I believe it was March 2012 when they tried to pull that with the oxys. So everyone went to fentanyl. Oh, and okay. Because I also heard that Neo, it was possible to abuse, but maybe it took a while to figure that out. Yes, it did take a while. We did learn, but by that point, we had already tried fentanyl and nothing even compared to that. So why even go back to the oxys, right? Mm -hmm. And fentanyl, I mean, that's even, that is a legal drug, right? Like it's used in hospitals? Uh, yeah. So it's supposed to be used for end of life, like cancer patients, but mm -hmm. they were giving it out for a lot of other things that they probably shouldn't have been giving it out for. So it was really easy to get. Um, I think there's a whole, like we haven't had a full reckoning yet, but I, I mean, I remember reading 10 or 20 years ago, we need to take pain more seriously. And now I realize that these high-powered doctors who are writing op-eds in newspapers and things like that in those days were probably mostly on the payroll of the drug companies. And their mantra was, you know, so many people in Canada are on pain. We can't be so stingy with pain medications. And it just kind of went down the line. Like at first it was, if you're dying of cancer, we'll give it to you. And, and then it got lesser and lesser um, until there were people who were going to be dealing with pain for maybe maybe they had 50 more years of life and you know you're putting them on a potentially addictive substance that's sounds like something is going to end badly yeah um it, no for sure and it was also easy for me to get to because of my job right so i had a lot of clients that got prescribed them um that okay. didn't want to take them and they're on like Canada pension and they can't afford to live and they find out, well, this prescription that I absolutely hate that makes me sick, people want, so. Um, and their it, prescriptions are paid for, right? So it's not yeah. money. <sighs> yeah. Right. Yeah, what's so, farmer care gonna do to drugs in Canada, right? Yeah. So it was just, it was really easy to get them. Um, mm -hmm. I had a lot of different ways to be able to get them. But the only thing is, is they're a lot more expensive than pills, right? Mm -hmm. And then when they tried to implement the patch for patch program, it started making them a little bit harder to get, right? right. Which skyrocketed the price. Mm -hmm. So with fentanyl, your tolerance increases extremely quickly with them. So you may start out only needing a tiny bit, but within a month, you're doing triple what you were doing in order to get high. And plus, so, as we're getting illegal fentanyl, like you actually don't really know what you're getting. Well, my at first it was patches. Mm -hmm. So okay. you kind of, you, you did, right? They go by mm -hmm. like um, 12 and a half milligrams, 25 milligrams, right, right. 50, 75, and 100, right? But they're not evenly um distributed on the patch so some pieces that you may cut off and smoke actually have more on it than the other side right yeah so the patches started going for six hundred dollars for a 100 milligram um and i was doing up to two so i was doing at least 200 milligrams of fentanyl a day um so that was a 
a $1,200 a day habit. Wow. Um, yeah. And, so, and so what in it, what got you in jail? Were you stealing or did you get caught trafficking or what was the thing that triggered the prison? So sentence? that's exactly it. Um, in order to afford that, your choices are, am I going to steal, rob people, do B&Es? Um, Prostitution, gonna... I guess, is, is right. another alternative for women. Yeah. Or am I just going to find it for people and sell it to them, like find it cheaper and sell it to them for more mm -hmm. and make mine free? Right. So that's what I chose to do. I chose to to find the connections where I could get it and I could get it cheaper and then sell it for more to these other addicts, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So the first time I went to jail, I was 26. Um, I'd never really been in trouble before that. I got in trouble when I was like 17 for fighting, but that's a youth record. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, the 2000, April 2014 uh, was the first time I got arrested. Um, I got raided with my ex. I got caught with um, fentanyl, weed, acid, um, brass knuckles, mace, and a loaded sawed-off over-under shotgun with boxes of ammo. Okay, that's <laughs> quite a, that's quite a, a load. <clears throat> yeah, first charge. Yep. Yes, and so yeah. you went to jail, came out, but that you you hadn't straightened yourself out, so you ended up going back again. Yes. So luckily for me, my ex and I were kind of broken up. So I had my own house and he had his and it was his that got raided. So he took the charges for everything that was in the house, but I had to take the charges for what was on me. So I did a little bit of time in provincial jail and ended mm -hmm. up getting out. I've, I've been arrested five times for the same shit. Fentanyl. Mm -hmm. right. And you know, what's actually funny is my prison sentence was not even my drugs. <laughs> oh really i went i went to prison for somebody else's drugs yeah um so that that's ironic actually <laughs> and and this whole this whole war on drugs thing of putting people in prison who have an addiction just seems so insane uh but that's that's a whole nother show <laughs> yes. on that uh, I'm, I'm sure you agree with me. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess there are people who are out in jail, but it's, it's, it's not clear that it's really that effective and it's incredibly expensive and it produces all of this violence. Like people yes. have to raise this huge amount of money to pay for the drugs and how are they going to get it? Well, they're going to rob or they're going to perform other crimes in order to get yep. large amounts of cash. So you went in for a longer prison sentence, right? And what was that? So I, um, they wanted, the Crown wanted five to six years, but he ended up coming up to my lawyer and said, if Heather is willing to take a plea deal and plead guilty to trafficking of fentanyl and letting her co-accused walk on all charges, I'll offer her three. So I didn't take it to trial and I just pled guilty to his drugs and let him walk and I went to prison. For three years? Yeah, because I wasn't he wanted to take it to trial and he was going to point his finger at me and I wasn't about to get up there and point my finger back. Mm. So, um, I was raised to not, um, not be a rat. And that's how I looked at it. Right. Well, I, I want to talk about what you found when you were in prison, but, um, 
like what was it that enabled you to stop this sort of cycle of drug using behavior and other other things that were self-destructive so i kind of got sick of it um like i was telling you earlier i had a really good life um you know i had like um two houses and three boats and motorcycles and cars and a good job and um i had my kids and i lost everything mm. and then when I was in jail, um, I gave custody of my children to my family. Right. So I have a son and a daughter. Um, and my daughter was really young. And yes. uh, I gave her to her aunt, her paternal aunt. And her aunt was extremely mad at me and didn't let me talk to or see my daughter for 22 months. Um, mm -hmm. And that killed me. It, yes. it killed me. And I remember being on the phone with my son and him going, mommy, why did you have to take the bad medicine? Why couldn't you just take the good medicine? And that, that really woke me up. So it was connections to other people, yeah. your children that were the, the Yeah, factor. and my youngest sister was having her first baby and I wasn't gonna be there for her. My mm -hmm. other sister was having another baby and I was never ever gonna know that baby because she was so mad at me and wasn't talking to me. Right. Um, and I was like, I have all these little people in my life, you know, that love me unconditionally and I am missing out on everything for what? Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I interviewed a neuroscientist a couple of years ago and uh, he was an addict when he was like a teenager and in his 20s and he, he wrote a book and the message i got out of the book was that people get into addictions because of loneliness exclusion things like that and I, i'm sure that there were only like a dozen stories i'm sure that's not the only reason but yeah. it seems like having connections um you know positive connections with other people is is what can really help people's um, yeah, well, the opposite of addiction is connection, right? Mm -hmm. So um, it, it definitely was those connections. Um, and once I was able to be in jail and clear my mind, I realized that I needed to deal with all my shame and guilt um, mm -hmm. and all my trauma and my abandonment issues um, and my resentments. Like I had to deal with those in order to be successful. Um, because yes. you blame yourself a lot you know like there's a lot of self-loathing right. and hatred but if you allow that to feed on you you're never going to get help did you have a lot of feelings like you wanted to change what had happened in the past despite yeah. not being able to yeah I, I i had a lot of guilt and shame and it ate at me but i was like okay it's in the past i can't mm. change it so mm -hmm. what am i going to do now to make that better Yes. Anyway, if we can switch over to your experiences in um, in jail, um, you know what? Um, I mean, I guess most people know a little bit about it, but what are the characteristics of of women in jail in Canada? Like, are they mostly drug uh, crimes that they're in there for? I know you mentioned there's a lot of Indigenous women in jail in Canada. Yeah. So. There is a lot of drugs. Um, pretty much every uh, woman that I was in with was in on like drug related crimes, whether it was like stealing food or um, like 
robbing people, like all those things, but it was for feed a drug addiction, right? Or right. drinking. Right. Alcohol uh, crimes. Right. So even if you're sentenced for theft, it might really be the drug addiction that's sent you there because that's why you're stealing. Yes. It, it's it's crazy how many addicts are sitting in our jails and our prisons who have not gotten the help or the healing that they need. It's yes, crazy. It, it, it does seem like, I don't think there's any simple answers, but it seems to me that putting people in jail who basically because they have a drug addiction is probably the worst option. <laughs> I mean, it some is. people are never gonna overcome their addictions. I think that's true. You can't be idealistic about it, but a lot will. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe sitting in jail, maybe that cures some people. But like you say, it wasn't really the jail that did it. It was, it was the fact that you had the time to think about your situation. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them give up in jail, too, because people use tough love. And they feel like they have nobody, right? So they, they just get out and they... They do the same thing over again and they're embarrassed too right mm -hmm. yes so when did you first find out uh, that biological men were being put in jails in canada so i never really realized what was going on um so in i believe it was january 2015 ontario passed their own legislation on um like trans like every province has their own. Mm -hmm. um, the, so Bill C-16 is federal, right. but this was happening before 2017. But I didn't realize it. I didn't pay any attention to it. I come from a small town. I didn't, I didn't even know what a trans person was. Okay? Like I called them transvestites for like the longest time because mm -hmm. I, was, I was ignorant to the fact. Like how would I know? Mm -hmm. um, what I thought was happening... So what I thought was happening, I didn't see them in Sarnia Jail at all. It didn't happen. But I got transferred to Southwest Detention Center, which is in Windsor. And that's mm -hmm. their new super jail. So they have a direct supervision range and an indirect supervision range. And, and this would be classified as a medium security? No, no. It's provincial. And remand provincial jails are max because you're not sentenced. So they're um they're not supposed to hold you for um a long time like you're supposed to go to court plead guilty and either mm -hmm. go off to a sentence provincial jail or a, a prison mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so in windsor we had a bunch of um biological males across the hall from us saying that they were female so my first experience was actually with Christopher Webster from London, um, right. fully intact male. The female guards were strip searching him at first, but he kept getting an erection and the guards felt really uncomfortable. So they started making the male guards do it. Mm -hmm. But all the ones that were across the hall were saying that they feared for their life. But if you looked at what they were in for, their charges, they're what we call skin hounds, or we call them skin beef charges. 
which means they're pedophiles. So they're child rapists, they're women rapists. So to, put, to, be, to clarify, they feared for their life in a male prison. Uh, yeah, because of their charges. Which, which, is, right which is a realistic so. fear, right? Because yeah. pedophiles don't do very well in, in male prisons. But no, on the other they hand, they, um, and were, I mean, pedophiles can either be sexually attracted to boys or girls or, or both. It yeah. doesn't necessarily mean they won't have sex with adults. Um, were these men, like you said, one of them was getting erections, are, are they sexually attracted to females? So interestingly enough, I was in with a woman who actually dated one of the guys that was across the hall and she couldn't even believe it. Um, so yes, they are attracted to females. Um, she dated him outside of prison, right? This wasn't like a prison, illicit prison relationship. No, no, it was years prior. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But um, even the one that I saw, a lot of his charges were like um, against women. Mm -hmm. um, but that's the only people that were across the hall because I actually had a laundry job. So the guards used to have to take me off range Monday to Friday. And um, I was there for so long, so I would talk to them. And the guards would always complain about the inmates across the hall. And, like, I would get info, right? Like, I would – I'm always asking, like, getting the lowdown on stuff, right? So, right. Um, I And I was a laundry worker, so I was in the storage closet trying to find a 6X female um, uniform. Like, we don't carry that size. And the guy was like – pissed off and he's like I want to wear girl clothing so they had to like special order it like <laughs> but but I mean um, uh, the the girl clothing so-called in prisons isn't exactly becoming is it so in provincial it's green tracksuit okay which is kind of unisex right yeah the guys wear um an orange jumpsuit okay and the girls wear a green tracksuit in provincial. And they wanted the green tracksuit. Yeah, and they wanted the bra and the women's underwear too. But we didn't have sizes that fit them because they're like six foot four, 250 pounds, right? Yes, yes. It, it, it's hard to um, understand. I mean, I, I understand these, these men are dealing with their own uh, trauma as well. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, their own issues, but um, it, it it seems like a fantasy to think that they put on a green tracksuit and a bra that they're uh, a sexually attractive female, as opposed to somebody looking at this massive biological male. Yeah, so in provincial, they kept them separated from us. Um, I haven't been to provincial since 2017, so I don't know if that's how they're still doing it or not. I'm so, so by separate, so by separate, obviously they had their their own sleeping accommodation, or, uh, showers. Yeah, so they were kept across the hall from us in indirect supervision. So indirect supervision is typically um, what every provincial jail is basically the guards do a round and you have a range in your cells. Whereas direct supervision, the guards are on range with you 24 mm seven. -hmm. So they, that's where they were kept. Um, and that's but did they I have their own sh shower facilities or did they? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that's where I first encountered Chris because, um, 
I actually got into the stupidest fight with this girl. Um, but anyways, we fought, I got handcuffed, I got brought across the hall and they started to make me strip, like strip search. And then the one guard came and I keep calling him Chris because I'm pretty sure he doesn't even identify as female outside of jail. And he went by Chris inside. So mm-hmm. um, they took Chris out of his cell and he stopped and he tried to peer into my cell and I had to cover myself. Um, and the guard grabbed him by the arm and pulled him away. Um, so it was like, whoa, what the heck, right? Like, um, that was my very first experience with that. Um, and because of, like, issues and trauma and stuff I've had in my past, it was kind of, it, it triggered me. And I brought back a lot of um, a lot of those things. And, of course, they don't have counseling or trauma counseling in jails, right? So you're left deal with these things by yourself and if you act out then you're thrown in segregation right yes i mean i think if you were in a washroom or change room at the swimming pool and uh you know a 250 pound male came in while you were changing i think there would be a somewhat traumatic effect right like what the hell is going on and yeah. uh there aren't that many women who want to change in front of men that aren't their partner or family, maybe family members. Some people are loose about that, but I mean, most, most women aren't big on changing in front of male strangers. Well, not even female guards, like in provincial, I had to do in order to work in the laundry department, I was strip searched on the way to work and on the way back from work. And every day it was a different guard. So in the four and a half months I worked in laundry, I was strip searched 180 times. And like when you're on your period, you have to remove your tampon in front of the guard. You still have to squat and cough. Hope you don't get blood on the floor. Insert a new tampon, right? So it's not even, it it increases the issue with it being a male. Mm -hmm. So we're male? Were male guards um, performing strip searches on you, or no? So the females did, but sometimes it was the male guards that were spotting the female for the strip search. Right, which would be a pretty uncomfortable feeling. Exactly. So with those strip searches, we're already reliving trauma, and then mm-hmm. now we have somebody who is in for sex crimes against a woman women and for vorism too and he's watching me get undressed uh were you ever in a space with males in in any of your time in jail like in the same room as them yes so um that's how provincial works federal um used to be that you had to have sex reassignment surgery in order to be with females. So what most people don't know is that they know about the Cynthia Kavanaugh case in 2001, but prior to that case, there was um, two other trans inmates that were in prison for women in Kingston. Um, Shelly Ball was one of them, and I can't remember the, the name of the other one. But they were in with the women in prison for women. And it was Cynthia Kavanaugh who fought and got it so that 
the government now pays for sex changes for transgender inmates. Mm -hmm. But they won't give trauma therapy to women <laughs> who are traumatized by exactly. something that happens in jail. Um, yes. so, so regarding um, sex reassignment surgery, I, there's an article in the US, I think it's Iowa, um, a certain, in, in November of last year, a certain Joseph Matthew Smith, yes. a former Midwest Christian Services student, convicted of as many as 15 sex crimes against victims whose ages ranged from one to 13 years, was sentenced to prison in December 2015. Now they're saying an offender's hormone levels are an important part of substantiating an offender's likelihood of recidivism. We don't believe we have evidence sufficient to prove Josie Smith has a significant chance of reoffending. I guess that's his uh, uh, new name. New name, yes. Um, so what's your experience with males who've had sex reassignment surgery? Are they less male typical behavior? Are they less aggressive, less strong, less sexually interested in women? Obviously they have not heard of Matthew Hart. That is clear. <laughs> Can you describe um, that case? Yes, yes, so Matthew Harks has had, or Madeline Harks, or it may even be going by Rebecca, the middle name now, I don't know, um, had gender reassignment surgery. The biggest offender in women's prisons right now has over 200 like assault cases. Um, every single halfway house in women's prison that Harks has been in, he's left a victim behind. Um, it has not decreased any of his behaviors because this is what people forget too. Like whether you want to deny the biological reality of sexes, male and female are different. It's mm -hmm. proven with stats. Um, so our pathways to criminalization, everything is different. Um, well, I would say that a lot of men are probably in prison for violence-related crimes. Yeah, and the population in the male prison, 20% are sex offenders, whereas only 2% are sex offenders in the women's prisons. And CSC even says that it's normally for giving access mm -hmm. to men. So this is another huge issue that people aren't comprehending as well. Um, so when a male commits a crime as a male and a female commits a crime as a female, there's different reasons. Right. Therefore, there are different approaches and different things that need to be taught to rehabilitate those criminals. Well, so, a, small, a small number of um, transgender women, biological males, um, who are legally recorded as females, a small number could dramatically skew the gender statistics on sex crimes. Now, all exactly. of a sudden, there'll be a huge increase in females uh, performing sex crimes, but it's all going to be uh, transgender, um, transgender females. Is it all going to be biological males performing male typical sex crimes, except for the two percent of women who are like facilitating a, a man to gain access to sex victims? No, exactly. And even CSCs reported in documents that they don't even have a case of a woman 
breaking into another woman's house to rape her. That's not a female crime. Sure, I'm not saying it's never happened, but CSC does not actually have a case of it. There's always there's always a counterexample, but it's as they say, it's the exception that proves the rule. Like if a woman broke into another woman's house and raped her, that would definitely make the news. Mm -hmm. Um, Sadly, um, men raping women often isn't really newsworthy because it happens pretty frequently. It happens all the time. And, but I, I mean, one of the concerns, obviously, of having a, a biological male in a women's prison is rape. But it, presumably, if a, um, a male has had sex reassignment surgery, they no longer have a penis, that's a lot more difficult. But what are some of the other concerns about biological males, you know, in terms of uh, compared to a, a woman's behavior and a woman's strength and other things like that? So I actually started talking about something and I kind of forgot, but um, okay. about the crimes. So we have mandatory programming in CSC that we have to complete in order to be able to go for parole. Mm-hmm. So the programming that is in women's prisons is designed for women who um, have grown up as girls. Okay. So if you look at, Um, pathways to crime, statistics, um, how we grow up, a lot of women lack boundaries and assertiveness. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. our programs are tailored to teach us healthy boundaries and how to be assertive. Okay. Now, think about these biological males who are self-identifying as female and their crimes and Do they need to learn how to be assertive and create healthy boundaries? Is that the reason they're committing crime? I'm sure that in a male prison, a lot of the programming, parallel programming would be on reducing aggressiveness, which is an extreme form of assertiveness, right? Of of teaching men with anger issues how to resolve problems without punching somebody and without yes. shouting at them and like to get to the point where where if, if somebody doesn't do a job that they're supposed to do that you you don't get into a big fight about it you, you just say you didn't clean the washroom and it's your job today right <laughs> that's that's what men are, need is help tamping it yes. down in i mean so some now all of them are getting women's programming so you have all these pedophiles, rapists, murderers that were male, biological male, committed the crime as male, going mm. into female institutions and then getting female programming. So as a community and a society, we need to think about that. Are they being rehabilitated? Are they getting the proper programming? Because they're being released back into the community. They're right. not. So what's going to stop them from reoffending? And society should be outraged at this because they will be released. They are being released. They're mm-hmm. not going to stay in there forever. So right. why are you not demanding that they get the proper programming to try and prevent another child from being raped or murdered? Yes. Uh, that's an excellent question. Um, have you, are there situations where 
these biological males in women's prisons have resulted in sexual relationships being established, maybe semi-coercive, like a, a woman is protected by a male, or um, females being raped by a biological male, or like men masturbating in front of women, things like that. I mean, th are those things that have happened? So just think about all these crimes that biological men commit, and let's take away the trans card, okay? Yeah. They're all happening inside the prison. What do you think is gonna happen when you put a bunch of males in with females? Well, and uh, they're, like we have, so we have male, like trans women that are coming into our cell and exposing themselves to us. Um, we have them walking around with their penises out. Um, one has cornered another woman in the bathroom and assaulted her. We have grooming behavior, um, inappropriate behavior. And then also some of these that are on the hormones, um, if they have un any like underlying health issues, like mental health, it's like exacerbating it. And they're very, mm. very, I want to say bipolar but I don't know if that would be the proper way to describe it. But well, one minute I, they're fine, and the next they're losing their shit. One of the big lies about pharmaceutical drugs is that they're targeted on one thing. But I mean, if you give hormones to a body that's not designed for those hormones, um, it, it, those hormones are going to affect every part of the body. So it wouldn't be surprised, surprising if it caused some psychiatric issues. As, I mean, it causes a lot of health issues like cardiovascular problems and things like that. I mean, yes. I don't know if these people going on hormones, male or female, are, are going to live very long lives considering the health effects. No, uh, definitely not. <laughs> another recent issue um, I, I read about in the Toronto Sun, and uh, I mean, that's, I don't want to divert, but it's very interesting that it's been more these so called right wing media that have dared to touch this. The, um, the left-wing media like the Toronto Star and the Globe Mail are really reluctant to touch these issues. It took them a long time to talk about Jessica Yanub, for example. But there's a recent report on somebody called Michael Williams, who in 2005 participated in the rape and murder of a 13-year-old girl named Nina Cortopat, yeah. I think on an Edmonton golf course. And he's recently applied for transfer to a women's prison. Uh, do you know much about this case? I know the whole case. <laughs> okay. Um, Give us yeah, some so details. It's, in it's interesting because um, so CTV, um, CBC, CP24, um, they've like, and a bunch of others have all contacted me, talked to me on phone through the email, asked me to send them all these details. I do. They have interest and they completely drop off the face of the earth. Um, and then it's actually only Brad Hunter from the Toronto Sun that's reporting on this. Um, and he did an article for me a couple months ago about this. Um, and he is the only one that is reporting. Um, in terms of the mainstream media, because I know these things yes. are reported in like the post-millennial, uh, yes. Quillette, things like that, which are considered, you know, the ragged edge of the right wing, although I don't think that's a fair characterization. Yes, I mean mainstream media. Mm -hmm. And um, 
So myself, I don't even know what the right or the left is. I don't know what radical feminist is or liberal, <laughs> whatever. I don't care. You know what I mean? Like I have an issue that I want people to be aware of and I'm willing to work with whoever it takes because I don't, I don't even classify myself as a feminist. I didn't even know what feminism was until two years ago. Right. Yes. Um, so it doesn't bother me who reports it as long as someone's reporting it because the Toronto sun is the only mainstream media willing to report on this issue. And my concerns are the well-being of those women inside. Like, what do I do? Not let them report on this and just allow the women to suffer and be raped and assaulted because somebody doesn't agree with the media source that I use? Well, I think my only problem with the Toronto Sun being the only one to report on it is that I think their reporting is pretty factual. But the impression, if people see something only in the Toronto Sun, it's like, oh, that rag. They, they probably made it up, right? But... You know, from what I can tell, I haven't found a case where the Toronto Sun or, or I think sometimes the National Post has covered similar issues. I haven't found a major distortion or error in their in their coverage. Um, but it takes a lot for um, you know the Globe Mail and Toronto Star. I I actually saw the Calgary Herald today, which is um, a sort of more centrist uh, cover one of these issues, not the women in prisons issues, but another transgender related issues. So maybe it's yeah. going to happen. I'm hoping it does. Um, but I know the story that the last two stories that have been in the Toronto Sun have been factual because I've spent hours getting all the details. Mm -hmm. I have the documents, you know, um, and interestingly enough is this isn't, Michael Williams was in Fraser Valley, Valley before, but there's allegations of sexual assault and maladaptive behaviors and was sent back to Kent. And now uh, he's reapplying for transfer. Right. I, I mean, I, I, as I think I said earlier, I, ha I have some empathy for people like this, like Michael Williams, because I, I, most of these men were abused as children, um, in, physically and sexually. But the, this is a question of safety. You know, dealing with Michael Williams' problems and, and seeing if, if society can turn him into a person who's safe on the street again is one thing. But putting him in a women's prison seems like an utter disaster. Well, it is because one, he's not getting the program needed mm -hmm. to rehabilitate him. Mm -hmm. And where where is the justice for Nina? Like, well, you're going to allow him to go and do softer time because women's prisons are way softer than men's. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't have to worry about having males, um, like, beat him up or do all those things because of his crimes because typically women don't do those things, right? Right, so, plus there's a lot of women around who are going to be malleable because they've been abused in the past and they've, they've adapted to give men what they want so they don't get beaten up. Yeah, so, and it, I, I don't think 
I th okay, so there is, um, so CSC changed their policy. It's an interim bulletin policy. I think it's 583. So they changed that because of Bill C-16. Mm -hmm. um, so before that, you needed to be on hormones. You had to have a sex change. You had to be living as a female. Right. Um, for the most part, there wasn't any issues, but we did have a couple that um, should not have been transferred, even under mm -hmm. those requirements. Mm -hmm. um, but now, you, you do not need to be on hormones. You do not have to have a sex change. You do not need to be living as a woman. You don't even need to have a woman's name. You could go by Frank. You could go by John. Doesn't matter because it's only self-identification. That is the only requirement to apply for transfer. So How, have CS you had, go ahead, continue. So CSC's policy, there are five things listed under transfer to women's um, prisons. And it says some aspects to consider. So they're only aspects to consider. They don't even need to be considered for transfer. And the issue here is, is that CSC has a very lax policy on the transfer. But even when CSC attempts to deny the transfers on those aspects, the inmates are filing a human rights case. Right. And then when that's not going fast enough, they seg themselves and Madamas comes into play. So it's um, a duty to perform law for just a, you know, a short little summary there, but it forces them to act on their duty. So then it gets brought to court and the judge says, oh, according to Bill C-16, they identify as female. We'd be discriminating against them if we don't allow them to apply, to apply for transfer to a women's site. But everyone is so wrapped up in their uh, it's like emotional it's like if you talk out about trans you're painting them all with the same paintbrush and that's not what we're saying we're saying if you weaken safeguards then predators are going to take advantage we're not saying trans are predators we're saying predators may pretend to be trans yeah exactly i mean self-id but I mean, there is no standard. I mean, there used to be a standard for proving that you were trans, you had surgery, you were living as a woman, etc. And now there's no standard. So if, if a guy figures the only thing between me and a cushier prison and access to female bodies is, is saying I'm a woman, that's all it is. I don't even have to wear a dress. I don't have to wear a bra if I don't want to. Um, I, I just need to say I'm a woman and I can, I can get transferred to a cushier, cushier environment. Yeah, and we have the mother-child program in our prisons too. Right. How how is that? It's I mean, this all has to be undone at some point, but they've gone so far so quickly that to undo it without losing face is going to be difficult. And the one thing politicians don't want to do is is lose face. How, how are they going to admit that this was all a disaster and they should have listened to the women and some some men as well who were uh, questioning this um, exactly and I, people are are saying like well this law or this legislation doesn't take anything away from women 
but that's not true because in 1990, we had a federally task force for women, federally sentenced women, and they made the Creating Choices report, which is like 100 pages long. And they realized that women are different from men and they need to be confined in a prison different than men. And there was a bunch of inquiries put in about prison for women, and they decided that prison for women was built on the structure of a men's prison. Yes. And they said it, it wasn't fit for bears. That is mm-hmm. literally in the report. They found that most women were not max security, did not need it, and that they were in for nonviolent crimes. Mm-hmm. So we fought... And we got it so that we didn't have the men's site deploying to the women's site. Recall the 1994 riot at prison for women when they brought the goon squad from Kingston Penitentiary over to the prison for women. And they um, literally strip searched the women who were sleeping in their beds and cut their clothes off of them. And then brought them over to Kingston Penitentiary in um house coats and threw them in men's seg so there's a huge huge ordeal over that right so we got it so that men's sites so men's prisons are not allowed to deploy to women's Mm -hmm. we got it so that they were not we had less security no weapons that we were allowed to have the mother child program the guards had no weapons Right. We didn't yep. even have a fence, a perimeter fence around Grand Valley Institution for Women until mm-hmm. 20 years ago. They had a white picket fence. But once they put in the max unit, the, the community was like, no, we want a fence. So we have a completely different structure than men. We do not have super max prisons for women. Our maximum security is similar to what a male's medium would be. Mm-hmm. So Okay, uh, we're running out of time, unfortunately. This is a really good conversation. I would like to preserve a couple of minutes to ask if you have any upcoming events or any fundraising to help you manage, you know, to, you're spending a lot of time on this. How are you managing to do that? And uh, so do you, first of all, do you have any events coming up that you'd like to mention? So I do. Um, with two of my best friends in Ottawa in two weeks, we're just talking about prison. Um, like my one friend, she did 38 years. Um, my other friend spent like three years in SAG. Um, they're just talking about their experience and their trauma from prison. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's just the Ottawa event on the 15th is just about everything you want to know about prison. So what February we went 15th. Through. Yeah, February okay. 15th in Ottawa, the Ottawa Public Library. Mm-hmm. And then I have an event March 31st in Vancouver. Actually, March 21st. At the Vancouver Public Library, I believe, with Megan Murphy. Oh, okay. The notorious yeah. Megan Murphy, who's also been on this show, I think, twice. Yes, that one. okay her name is famous anybody else uh, speaking at that event yeah um coach blade i'm like drawing a blank on her first name is it linda she'll Uh, be there too she's um advocating for um women's sports oh okay um that's also another 
issue, which I haven't really covered yet, but hope to um, cover there. I mean, this whole trans thing has opened up a lot of things, the, the impact of hormones and surgery on young people, the impact on women's spaces, impact on women's sports. Yeah. There are so many things and, and, you know, the progressive world basically wiped that all aside and only slowly are, are people starting to wake up and go, you know, what the heck, I didn't realize that it was gonna cause all of these uh, significant issues. Yes, she would be a good one to interview for sports. Mm. She knows what she's talking about. <laughs> and is there anything else you'd like to add before we close? Um, no, I think that's probably everything. I'm just doing this um, all volunteer. This is entirely 100% volunteer. So I work full-time Monday to Friday, and then I literally volunteer my time and everything on all of this. So well, if they I did want to did want to donate to Cause Bar, that would be awesome. Canadian awesome. Women's Sex Space Rights. Yes. So I'll put the link in the show notes. So, yeah, I think I think people should be supporting these uh, organizations. If you want change to happen, you need to open your wallet, <laughs> or like yes. yourself, spend time. Like you're giving more than money, you're giving your time. But for for a lot yep. of people who can't give time. Um, they can open their wallet and give to these nonprofit organizations. Heather, I'd just like to really thank you for joining me today. This has been a great discussion. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to episode 234 of The Infectious Myth. If you have a comment, question, or suggestion for a future guest, please email me at david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com. Like us at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at InfectiousMyth. Commit to monthly donations of any amount to InfectiousMyth on Patreon.com or LiberaPay.com. Until next week, thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.